let's, let's go to, to what we're going to talk about this morning, which is very much connected to that. I want to take us ultimately to the breakthrough moment for Luther, which we don't quite see in the film, but it was sort of hinted at. But before we go there, let's come to today, because we're not living in the same circumstances. We don't have Catholic priests and, you know, kind of overbearing religion and inability to access scripture. We're living in a very different world. And yet, one of the issues that I think we live with is just a different version of what they lived with. Ever noticed that there is an incredible pressure socially to measure up to a standard? to present yourself in a way that will make you acceptable to others. You get it in school, don't you? Primary school, even secondary school, certainly. What trainers are you wearing? What clothes are you wearing? What, you know, what stuff do you have? What phone do you own? And then it may be a shock to discover that it's the same thing in the workplace, that there's kind of an in-crowd and a not-in-crowd, and there's pressure to conform, the way to act, the things to say, the way to behave, the shape of your body, the look of your face, your makeup, your hair. There's kind of this pressure to live up to an acceptable standard. Maybe you get that within families, that uh, no matter what you do, you can never quite measure up, but your sibling, just whatever they do, everything goes right, and there's this kind of pressure to perform. You ever sense that in the world? It's in the church, I'm sorry, it's in schools, it's in the workplace, it it can be in neighborhoods, you can have very catty kind of atmospheres between neighbors because so-and-so's not, you know, don't like them and we do like this person. And it's kind of a horrible thing to live with. And it's especially horrible, I think, when we discover it in the church. And I hope you haven't felt that at Trinity, but I'm sure if you've been involved in churches over the years, you've been in environments where that is very much a part of the ethos. There's an in-crowd and a not-in-crowd. There are people who dress well and have the right haircut and the right makeup and the right look, and then there are those who don't. Or there are people who can give the right humor, the the right responses that are quick on their feet with the, the comments they make, and then those that don't just kind of get sneered at. Do you know what I mean? You can get it in church world. The people that go to the right meetings or on the right committees, the people that have the influence and the people that don't. And sometimes it can be quite slippery to try to figure out what is it I'm even supposed to be or do in order to fit in. And sometimes you just kind of have the sense that no matter what I do, there is no way that I can fit in. Anyone sense that anywhere ever? It's really common, isn't it? All the time, everywhere. At Trinity, we, I think we're aware of that and we want to. We're trying to kind of spot anything that creates that kind of an atmosphere and just try to nip it in the bud because we want to be a church group where you feel safe, where you can be yourself, where you can be honest and vulnerable, where you can say, I'm struggling, or you can you know, not be as well-dressed as someone else or even as well-dressed as yourself. Or, you know, we, we don't want to be a church where body shape or, or anything like that is a, is a factor. We just want to be safe and love each other. But it's not easy because in our world, that's normal. Think about social media, Facebook and Pinterest and Snapchat and whatever kind of age bracket you fall into, which determines which one of those you're in. It's very much a present yourself in a way that will be liked by others. It's overt, like, right? It's, it's there. And there's this pressure, sort of almost like a, like a narcissism 
on Facebook. Sometimes it's quite depressing to scan down the page and just see people presenting. Look at the wonderful meal I've made. Look at the wonderful life I live. Look at my new jeans. Look at my smile. Aren't I pretty? Check out my kids. And sometimes it's a bit like, oh, please, would someone please say I'm struggling because I am and they don't seem to be. And so we're living in a world that isn't oppressively religious like the medieval world was that Luther was growing up in, but we're living in a sort of socially oppressive environment where there's a pressure to conform and a pressure to perform that really creates tension for us. Now, what is the result of that? Whenever you feel that you have to measure up in order to be accepted, whenever you feel you have to perform in order to be uh, trustworthy to others, the pressure is that it creates incredible fear. It creates a fear, what if someone sees me as I look before the makeup? What if someone sees me as I am without my public appearance? What if someone sees the real me? What if someone sees the struggle? Then there's a fear that comes with the pressure to perform. And so even though we're not living in Luther's world, we're living in a fallen world. And in that sense, there's a a massive similarity. And I I don't get the sense with Luther that he particularly cared what people thought of his body shape or his dress sense. But he really cared about what God thought. And the view that he had of God was incredibly one-dimensional. It was one-sided. And the discovery that he made was a revolutionary discovery that changed that. And in exactly the same way, that's what we need, isn't it? Because as much as we can be kind of socially pressured, there's also the reality that there is a God and he does judge. And I I don't know how much we struggle with that. I don't know how much you think about that. But but I know there's many people, many of us probably even in this room, that will have moments in life, maybe when we, we lie down in bed at night and we close our eyes and we just think, I don't know. I, I, I know technically but what if, what if when I meet God, he actually measures me and discovers that I don't measure up? What if my, I mean, I got saved, I'm a Christian, I know the gospel, but, but I've sinned since. Or there's this one thing that seems too big, or there's this kind of ongoing thing that I can't seem to shake. Whatever it is, I think it wouldn't be unusual for a good number of us in this room to actually have moments of fear of facing God, even though we know what the gospel is. And actually, if it weren't for the gospel, if it weren't for Jesus, that fear would be absolutely on target. It's a terrifying thing, isn't it, to fall into the hands of the living God, to, to come before God and to have God roll out the, the kind of life history that you've lived, every thought, every deed, every word, everything you've said or didn't say, done, didn't do, should have done, didn't do, whatever. If, if God were to measure your life according to the standard of his perfection, you and I would and should be absolutely terrified. If God kept a record of our wrongs, we would be done for, no matter how well we've done. And so that fear of God is appropriate. But for Luther, it was overwhelming. And and, and I'm glad it was, because it forced him to wrestle with it, and in the process to discover the joy of the gospel. And that's what I want us to feel as well, because it's easy for us in our noisy world to be distracted by likes on Facebook and to sort of hide from the fact that one day we're going to stand before God. 
What's he going to do with us? What's he going to make of us? Remember the bit right at the start of the film? Maybe you missed it with all the breaking glass action that was going on. But at the start of the film uh, that we watched last night, there was the, the scene of the storm, and Luther was terrified by the lightning that was coming down. He, all, he got hit, he fell over, and he cried out. Who did he cry to? Did anyone catch that? He cried out to Saint Anne. Saint Anne is uh, traditionally Mary's mother. Okay, so Mary, the mother of Jesus, he cried out to Saint Anne, if you rescue me, I will become a monk. He was studying law and he shifted over to becoming a monk because he survived that storm. Why did he cry out to Saint Anne? Well, the logic goes, Saint Anne seems to be a nice person because she obviously had Mary, and Mary, definitely a nice person, so obviously her mum's got to be nice. So if I have a word with Saint Anne, maybe she can put in a word with Mary. And if Mary, you know, has Saint Anne's kind of saying, daughter, you know, Martin here, you know, uh, maybe Mary can have a word with Jesus. And if Mary has a word with Jesus, he obeys his mother. We, we're told that in the Bible. So therefore, Jesus can have a word with his father. And that's literally the logic of an awful lot of the kind of Catholic prayer approach is that you pray to someone accessible, someone nice. But implicit in that is the fact that God the Father himself is terrifying. It's amazing to realize that for Luther, what was he at that point? Uh, 1920, it's 1505. So yeah, he was almost 20 years old. He had never in his life spoken to God. Never once prayed to God because God's scary. God's frightening. And so he cried out to St. Anne, was rescued, became a monk, and then went into this diligent religiousness, just wrestling with trying to be good enough and, and scrubbing the floor and scrubbing his life and trying to be holy and never quite measuring up. And that was the way it was. Because the whole Roman Catholic system of justification, that is, how do you get justified before God, was based on a verse that has nothing to do with justification. It's based on Romans 5, verse 5, which says, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he's given to us. Which is a wonderful verse, but if you make that the basis of your justification, what it says is, God has done something inside you by pouring out his grace into you, and you are being transformed on the inside, which means if you're transformed enough, you'll be good enough for God. It was a performance in order to be accepted kind of an idea. And so that was what Luther was taught, that's what he lived with, was I've got to be good enough for God, and he just found that he was not transformed on the inside to a level of perfection. Anybody else ever feel that? I am not transformed to a level of perfection. And yet, if I am not perfect, then how can I stand before a perfect God? And so he was gripped with fear. Gripped with fear. And he wrestled with it specifically in Romans chapter 1. If you've got your Bible, we're just going to look at a couple of verses in any closeness. Romans chapter 1, which is page 939. There's some church Bibles here if you want to spread the word, as it were. Two verses, page 939, Romans 1, 16 and 17. And specifically in verse 17, we'll start with just the phrase that bothered him. 
In 17, it says, in the gospel, uh, there is a revelation of the righteousness of God. Or in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And for Luther, he could not get his head around the fact that the gospel, the good news, involves revealing the righteousness of God. That's terrifying. Good news, I'm perfect. If, if that's what God's saying to us, we, we're stuffed, right? What do we do? Good news, I'm perfect. The righteousness of God is revealed. And for Luther, he wrestled with that and he struggled with that because that's not good news. That's terrifying news. If God's standard is, is higher and better than anything we've ever seen before, what are we supposed to do? All the time trying to live out the transformation that God's supposedly working in us. And yet God is giving us standards that we cannot live up to. He's giving us commands that we cannot help but break. And he's saying, be holy. And we're saying, we can't. And God's saying, you must. And we're saying, this is scary. And God's saying, it's all right, I'm going to judge you. And you go, what? How's that good news? Yeah, it's good news because the righteousness of God. I'm righteous. No, that's frightening, God. I don't want you to be righteous. I want you to be average. I want you to be a little bit flawed or something. It's a it's a terrifying thing to say that the righteousness of God is good news. And Luther wrestled with that. That phrase bothered him. Let me tell you what he said. This is just my one Luther quote for today. He said, though I lived as a monk without reproach. It was funny. Do you notice when, um, you may have missed it because the sound was a bit funny at the start. When he was kind of terrified in his cell and Staupitz, his, his kind of spiritual father, came to him and he said, Martin, Martin. He said, You've never confessed anything remotely interesting. But Martin Luther would be in the confessional booth and he would be confessing literally for six hours everything he could come up with. And the person he was confessing to at times would say, I've got to eat. Sorry, Martin. That's enough now. Come on. It's time for dinner. So Martin Luther, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. And I believed that God was not satisfied. I did not love, no, rather I hated the God who punishes sinners. Secretly, if not blasphemously, I was angry with God. You can understand that, can't you? Just hate him. Why would he expect of us what we cannot provide and then send us to hell when we fail? Seems so unfair. He wrote, I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant, the revelation of the righteousness of God that we're looking at right here. I wanted to know what he meant. And then he says, then I paid attention to the context. I looked at what was going on around it and listened to these words, all at once... I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately, I saw the whole of scripture in a different light. What did he see? Look at verse 16. Here's Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. I'm not ashamed of it. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed, how? From faith to faith, or from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
What he discovered as he looked at it and saw it in its context was that the righteousness of God was not this kind of standard that is impossible to meet that's being revealed so that you can feel oppressed by it. The righteousness of God is actually a gift that God wants to give to you. It's a gift that is yours if you will accept it. That changes everything, isn't it? Doesn't that kind of revolutionize it? Doesn't that give you a glimpse of what God is really like that makes you go, oh, no, no, no. This isn't a God to hate and a God to fear. This is a God I can love. Because this God looks at me in my unrighteousness and in my muck and in my grossness, and he says, I'm going to give you a righteousness that is not yours. I'm going to give it to you. I'm not going to make you earn it because you never could. I'm not going to make you pay for it. I'm not going to give it to you on a kind of a pay uh, to play or a loan to own kind of a deal. There's no way you can pay back. There's no way you can kind of earn this ahead of time or after the fact. I'm going to give it to you. It's yours. My righteousness is yours if you will trust me for it. If you will trust that I'm a God who will keep my word. If you will trust that I'm a God who, who, who's willing to give you righteousness and then you bank your whole eternity completely on that. That's amazing, isn't it? It's like when, when that light dawned for him, he, he said, it, it was like all at once I had been born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. And then the whole Bible was different. Let, let me just read a few verses from Romans. I'll, I'll try not to get carried away, but, but there's so much even in Romans that, that is astonishing here. Chapter two, verse four um, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Come down to chapter 3. Um, oh, where should we go? 21. Oh, let's go back a bit. 19. Chapter 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God's law shows us that we are sinners. But, verse 21, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Do you notice that verse 24 or 23? All have sinned, that includes you and me, all fall short of the glory of God, yes we do, and we are justified by his grace as a gift. How cool is that? It's not something we earn, it's a gift. Chapter four, verse one, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted, counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, 
His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes or trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts, to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Isn't that an amazing thought? Just think about that. All the sins you've ever done, past, present, future. All the good things you haven't done, past, present, future. All the things you've even dreamt of doing. Even the things that have kind of belched up within you in a moment of anger or a moment of weakness. And then you've gone, no, 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 no. Just the fact that it was there in the first place. All of that, God is prepared to wipe that. To make it completely clean so that your criminal record does not exist, so that before God you've got a completely clean slate. Isn't that an amazing thought? In chapter five, verse six, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse eight, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we could keep going. Romans is full of this. You kind of get a sense of what Luther was starting to see. The gift of God, his righteousness given, is an astonishing thing. It's like the gates of heaven are flung wide open and there's music playing and on the inside you see a banner with your name saying, welcome Paul, welcome Rich, welcome Melanie, welcome Ruth. And you go, what? I don't feel like I belong. And you're welcomed as if you truly belong. That is coming out of the righteousness of God. Not because it's a standard we cannot live up to, but because it's a gift that is given to us in the gospel. Now, there's two parts to this righteousness that we've got to to recognize, two aspects to being justified. Firstly, there's what I've just said. Blessed is the one whose sin is not counted against him. Hands up if you'd like that. Right? Yes, please, Lord. Make it so that my sins are not counted against me. That is what it means to be justified. Sometimes people say justified just as if I'd never sinned. Lovely. Okay, so there's that idea, the, the complete forgiveness, the wiping out of all the negatives. Praise God for forgiveness. But justified is more than forgiven. It's not just the negative is wiped away and we walk into God's presence as neutrals. You know, as sort of blah individuals that have never done anything wrong, but nothing. You know, just neutral, just kind of blank slates. There's the negative, the sins wiped away, and there's a positive. What's the positive? We're given the righteousness of Christ. How cool is that? So it's not just, hey, your sins are wiped away. Now you, Mr. Miss Blah individual who stands for nothing and is just kind of useless, come on in and make yourself at home in God's presence. No, instead what God does is he takes the righteousness of Christ and he pours it into our status. So that when the records are brought out and we stand before God and he looks at the record, it's not empty, it's full of the righteousness of Christ. Who wants that? That's amazing, because he was perfect. 
He really pleased the Father. And that means that when the Father looks at us, he is really pleased with us. And we haven't done a thing. It's not about performance. It's not about living up to a standard. It's simply by faith. Lord, you're offering that as a gift. I'll have it. Yes, please. We should be yes, please kind of people when we're looking at God. And so Luther, with that kind of insight, when he kind of, it was dawning gradually as well as having his moment of breakthrough, when he got to the point of, okay, Rome is really not accepting what I'm saying here. He's dedicated all these different works to the Pope and, you know, and he finally realized, okay, they're not accepting this. His final one, his final appeal was the freedom of a Christian dedicated to Pope Leo X ironically, as it turns out. But he dedicated it to him, and we read it yesterday. Remember that second one we looked at? What's the gospel really like? What's the picture that I'm describing here? Luther was going to say, well, here's the third incomparable benefit of faith. It's not just that our lives are changed so that we're not saved based on works, but based on God's righteousness. It's not just that we have a more positive view of God and we honor him. It's that we are actually united to Christ, one spirit. It's like Christ, the great perfect prince, marries this pauper, this poor, wretched harlot with all of her sin and her grossness and her baggage and all the mess and the debt and all of that. And he comes and he marries her. And when he marries her, what happens? There's a great exchange. He takes all that is hers and she has all that is his, just like in any marriage. When Melanie and I got married, if one of us had had debt, after we got married, two of us would have had debt. You know, if Melanie had this kind of wonderful upbringing and, you know, a nice, uh, perfect life, and I came along with a 200,000 pound school debt, hey, thanks for marrying me, surprise, you get this. And it would have been our debt. It's co-owned. It's what happens in a marriage. And Luther's saying that the prince, Christ, the perfect bridegroom, brings with him what? Life and righteousness and salvation. And we bring sins, death, and damnation. And he swallows that up in himself. And he gives us his righteousness, life, and salvation. We get all that is his. He gets all that is ours. And, and how is it that we can doubt when he has already proven it by giving us his very self, his very body on the cross. If he's done that, why would he hold back anything else? Nothing that he owns, nothing that he has is worth as much as as what he gave when he died on the cross. And so just as he's given everything and proven it already, we can have everything and we can trust him for everything. And we don't need to be carrying around the old baggage. We don't need to be carrying around the old harlotry of our background and all of our sins and our guilt. He's taken that. Doesn't mean that we're perfect yet. Just think about it. The pauper or the harlot that is married to the prince, she is now queen, but she'll probably look and smell a bit harlot-like. She'll struggle to change her view of things. She'll struggle to, to let go of certain habits and to speak a certain way. She won't sound like a queen and she won't act like a queen, but she is the queen if she's married to him, the royal bridegroom. And that's us. And so instead of us having to say, you know what? I'm not there yet, but I'm working on it. One day I'll be good enough. We go, no, 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 no. I know I'm not good enough, but God's working on me. And you want to know what's going on in my life? Here's the junk. 
And it doesn't, doesn't ruin anything for me to admit it. I am my beloved's and he is mine. That's the verse that Luther ended up using from Song of Solomon to make this kind of plea to Rome. This is what we're offered in Christ. I am my beloved's and he is mine. We have each other. We are one. I'm, I'm forgiven. I've got the righteousness that is Christ's. And yeah, my life's a mess. And yeah, I struggle with sin. And yeah, I have desires that I wish I didn't have. And yeah, there's still stuff clinging on to me. But gradually, step by step, he's changing me. He's cleansing and he's working in me. But it comes after, not before. I don't fix myself in order to be loved. I'm loved and that starts the fixing process. And so here we are as a group of believers, hopefully, uh, people who are trusting in Christ. And obviously, if you're not, then, then that needs to be the, the next step, doesn't it? The, the step of accepting the offer that's made. And it's quite possible you're here and you go, actually, I've never trusted. I've never said, Jesus, if that's what you're offering, I'm in. Please forgive me for my sin. Give me your righteousness. Make me yours. I just want to throw myself completely onto you. If that's where you're at, let's talk more about it. But for the majority of us, we've already belly flopped, right? We've already said, okay, I've got no plan B. I'm all yours, Lord. And we're discovering more and more as the years go on just how ugh, we are. And that's why we want to be a, a church that represents the reality of the gospel. And here's the reality. The reality is that God is not a God to be feared. He's a God that we can love. And so instead of shying away from him and doing everything we can to avoid him, we can be honest with him and say, God, here is the insides of me. I know you know it. But this is who I am. We can be honest with him. We can tell him. We can confess. We can repent. We can turn from and then turn again and then turn again. We can keep coming back and saying, God, I'm so sorry. That's gross. But it's still there. And Lord, I'm sorry. And, and, and we can be honest with God. But we can also be incredibly bold. Isn't there a boldness that comes from it? Father, I need to talk to you about something. We don't need to hold back. We don't need to act like we've got it all together as if we're trying to impress him. We can come into God's presence. We don't need to pray to Saint Anne or Jesus' mother or anyone. We can just go to the Father in the name of the Son and we can walk into his presence with the same boldness that Jesus can. What an amazing truth that is. Father, I need to talk to you about something. There's this thing that concerns me. It's like we've got a direct line, and it's like it's almost beyond a direct line. It's like one of those buttons that secretaries have that means that your voice is coming through the speaker on his desk. You don't even have to wait for him to pick it up. Father, I've got a question. And we can just go straight in because we've got total access because of the righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel. Isn't that amazing? We don't have to fix ourselves. We don't have to make ourselves good enough. We don't have to do hand washings and go to church and you know, say certain prayers and quote a psalm from memory and sing three hymns and you know, whatever it is the evangelical version is. We don't have to do any of those things in the grossness of who we are sometimes. We can just go, oh God. And we can come boldly into his presence and we can talk to him. There's a boldness that comes from that. And that's the reality of the gospel that I'd love to be true for me and for all of us. That with God, we're totally open and we're vulnerable and we're honest and yet we're bold. We're ready to stand in his presence and we're ready to stand for him in this world. There's a boldness that comes because it's not based on my performance. 
And that can translate into the community. What a privilege it is to be part of a church where there's no pressure to perform, where we don't have to have it all together, where we can instead say, here's the real me, and I'm struggling. Here's the real me, and I'm tempted. Here's the real me, and I'm overwhelmed. Here's the real me, and I feel like I'm falling to pieces. And we can be real and vulnerable with each other, but we can also be bold with each other. We can be confident. We can take a risk. I, I tell you, I'm an introvert. I struggle with expressing things that go beyond superficial. So for me to say, hey, you did a great job, or I'm really glad you're here, or thank you so much, that just feels awkward. If you're an extrovert, you think you're weird. But us introverts know what I mean. It's like it's easier to just, just kind of smile and retreat than it is to say, I'm glad you're in my church or I'm glad that you're here, or I'm thankful for you. And yet I find that when I'm thinking about the gospel, and when I'm grateful for what God's done for me, it actually doesn't matter. If I step out and say something encouraging, and it just goes, and you know, kind of sounds weird, and they look at me like, and walk away, I don't care, because God loves me, and I'm okay. Do you see what I'm saying? We can be boldly loving one another. We can be boldly standing for Jesus together. We can be boldly supporting one another as we struggle. And that's all because of the revelation of the righteousness of God. His gift to us. That's our privilege. That's why we're celebrating the Reformation. Not because we've got this thing about German monks. It's because we've got this thing about the Bible. And the gospel that the Bible reveals to us. We don't have a God to fear. We have a God that loves us. Yes, he is frightening if we don't accept his offer. He is a God that if God were to step into this room and manifest his presence for a second, we'd be flat on our faces. There's no questioning the awesomeness of God, but he's a loving father who wants to receive us onto his lap in a warm embrace. And that's what Luther rediscovered. And so instead of fearing him, we can love him. We can come boldly into his presence with total transparency because he knows everything and he loves us still. And therefore, as his people, we can live that out to each other. Transparent, vulnerable, honest, and real. Boldly, courageously loving and supporting and caring and standing for him in a society that desperately needs the gospel, the good news. Let me pray that that would be true for us, even this month, that that would grip us as we move forward. Let's pray together. Father, we we thank you for what Luther rediscovered, but we thank you way more than that, that it was always there in your word. Thank you that it's always been your intention to love us so, so radically. And to not just wipe away all of our sin and deal with the negative, which in itself is astonishing, but, but Lord, to also give to us the righteousness that is not our own, but it's from outside. It's that alien righteousness, as they say. It's that righteousness that comes from Christ and is given to us even though we've not earned it and we've not lived up to it. And Lord, I pray that you would work out in us the response to that, that we would be vulnerable before you and real and honest, but also bold and confident with all that we have in Christ. And that as your people, we would be vulnerable with one another, not feeling the pressure to perform or to live up to a standard, but just being real with all of our weaknesses 
and loving each other boldly because of your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that you don't ask us to make ourselves attractive in order to be loved, but instead your love makes us beautiful. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.